The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up at Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 19th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On this, this Canadian election day, excuse me if I focus your attention, on an election taking place south of there, a country called the United States. And while you as an American, presumably, we've seen the market research, while you might be saying, actually, as an American, the American election is actually more relevant to my life than the Canadian one, it won't be after I mention this salient fact. I'm going to talk about Mike Huckabee. So yeah, the huckster has no chance to have any impact on any actual vote or politics or thoughts. But in another desperate attempt for attention, he's been tweeting. Like this one during the Democratic debate. I trust at Bernie Sanders with my tax dollars like I trust a North Korean chef with my Labrador, to which a few thousand people, perhaps reading very carefully into the subtleties of the tweet, said, that's flat out racist. To which the huckster replied, no, no, no. I said North Korea. Here's an email his campaign put out, quote, leave it to liberals to ignore injustices and atrocities of a totalitarian nation on human beings and put more importance on a nation's diet, which includes grass clippings and canines, facts, North Koreans eat dog, and Bernie Sanders wants to spend $18 trillion of your money. What's so hard to understand? Yes, an official campaign email had the phrase, North Koreans eat dog in it. But I like this gambit. I like this huckster gambit where you get out of the accusation of racism by highly targeting your racism to terrible people. Like you could say, no, no, no. I didn't say we need a wall to keep out those disgusting Mexicans. I said we need a wall to keep out those disgusting Mexicans like Subcomandante Marcos. That's who I was talking about. I wasn't making a generalization about the work ethic of black people, just the members of Boko Haram. It's really, really easy. Huckster, I see ya. And I saw that two months ago you were on CNN and you were asked about the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I've dealt with race issues my whole life. And quite frankly, I think it's more of a sin problem than a skin problem. You've dealt with racism problems your whole life? Really? Because you came up with that rhyme. I don't see why these racism problems would would keep popping up with that verbally dexterous rhyme scheme you deployed. Not about the skin, about the sin. I don't, I just, I really don't understand. I don't understand what he's trying to say. Is it just that if you rhyme, people believe you? Did I support TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Act? I did support the Troubled Bassett Relief Act, those flop-eared dogs. I pick them up, I hug them, they trip over their own ears. I also like the part of that answer, the quite frankly part. Quite frankly, more of a sin problem than a skin problem. Thank you. Just such frankness, such honesty. What, you want to know about people living under poverty? Well, in all earnestness, and I'm bearing my soul a little bit here, it's not about the poor. It's about opening the door. Oh, uh, what's that? How would I as president combat Ebola? Well, by means of full disclosure, let me say that 
It's not about the virus. It's more about why us. You see what I'm saying? It's not about the festering wounds. It's more about not pestering baboons. I'm talking about root causes here. Ebola was probably transmitted from the monkey population. I'm being very, very honest. I'm being extremely honest here with my rhyme-oriented solutions. In the spiel, my problem with diplomacy. But first, yeah, I have spent way too much time talking about Mike Huckabee among the conservatives. So let's broaden our analysis of both fields of candidates and talk to a brilliant conservative mind encased within a pleasantly glaberous skull, Raihan Salam. You know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just a click of your mouse, that feeling called being on the computer in 2015? Yes, you know that feeling. You like that feeling. You can't escape that feeling, except at the post office. Because the post office runs counter to that feeling because it doesn't allow you to do that. But now it does. No, not the post office. A different service. That's stamps.com. Get all your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk. Turn your Mac or PC into a post office that never closes. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then give it to the mailman. Drop it in a mailbox and don't go to the post office. Right now, sign up for stamps.com and use the promo code the gist for a special offer, a four-week trial, a $110 bonus offer, including postage, and a digital scale, real, live, physical digital scale. They don't tell you this at stamps.com. You could weigh other things besides your postage for fun. That, that's called an off-brand usage. They don't endorse it, but I'm going to tell you you could do it. Anyway, you go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Rahan Salam is the executive editor of National Review. No, the, right? You guys that's don't correct. like the, the. Yes. Let's just start off with the debate. In general... What do conservatives want out of the Democratic primary? Do they want Hillary to just struggle through it or do they want her to be pulled to the left? Is that something, you know, Bernie Sanders will pull her to the left? What are they looking for? I don't think Republicans need to want Hillary Clinton to be pulled to the left. Mm -hmm. That is happening. I think that it's a very powerful development. And I think that Clinton's camp, they've said, look, we're not afraid anymore. We think the electorate is really different. There are lots of unmarried voters, way more minority voters. And we basically own these guys. We don't have to worry about that. So we can go as far left as we want. and It's not going to be a problem. So you had this Democratic debate. And here's who was on the stage. Older white guy, older white guy, older white guy, older white guy, older white woman. And now here are the five people who are leading in the polls in the Republican field. Older white guy, black guy, Latin guy, woman, Latin guy. Now, this could tell you a lot of things. One thing that it tells me is diversity for diversity's sake isn't going to automatically translate into actually ideas and policies that will necessarily help diverse communities. As the political gap fest noted, if the composition of the fields were switched, this would probably be the number one Democratic talking point. But what does it tell you? When you're looking at Democrats who are from underrepresented minority backgrounds, uh, black and Latino, basically, uh, when you look at these guys, they are often representing majority minority constituencies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for lots of, you know, we carved out these districts and, you know, you get, so you know, the Congressional Black Caucus consists of a lot of folks who are representing majority black constituencies. Whereas when you're looking at, uh, you know, non-white Republicans, it's pretty rare that they're representing majority minority constituencies. Um, you know, these are candidates who've had to 
appeal to uh, a more diverse electorate, but really to white voters a lot of the time, because, you know, I think it was, you know, just over 90 percent of Republican votes for uh, rather Mitt Romney votes in 2012 were from whites. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these were people who were kind of already appealing to that slice of the population. So I think that that's part of it. It kind of um, leads to a different kind of candidate. And also those guys who were running in districts that are not majority minority, you know, they had more of a fighting chance running for statewide office. So that's why, you know, you've got a couple of Asian American governors who are both uh, Republicans. I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that is it going to make much of a difference in a general election? I'd say that it doesn't make a big difference in itself. What makes a difference if you have candidates who kind of can can talk about certain contentious issues uh, in a smart way that feels fresh and relevant to people. So, for example, you know, Marco Rubio, he is someone who, you know, when asked about concerns among African-Americans about police brutality, said, well, look, you know, I have a friend, personal friend of mine who has stopped, you know, 10 times in 18 months. I don't remember the exact sequence, yeah, but, yeah. you know, but he was able to say, like, look, you know, it's not crazy for people to be angry and frustrated by this kind of thing. And actually, I think that, you know, I would take that message and broaden it out. I would say, actually, I think the real problem we have is that some Americans are so much more vulnerable to being victimized by criminals than other people. And it just so happens that they're members of minorities. Now, that doesn't mean that you then have, you know, ultra punitive policies that then wind up disrespecting all these people who are law abiding. You know, you've got to find some way to protect people and also treat people with respect. Yes, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, exactly, and I yeah. think that that's uh, that's a I think that that's a message that not all of these candidates get, and especially at this time when they're trying to appeal to a Republican electorate. They're not incentivized to get. They're not incentivized to express that. You know, I'm not sure. Subtly. I'm not sure that's it exactly. I think that it's more a matter of who are you around, what are the messages you hear, yeah. and also how. I mean, this is a kind of weird term to use, but how modern are you? Like, how in touch are you yes. with the kind of the state of the conversation? Right Right now, right, and I scenario. think the three sitting governors, for instance, including Jindal Kasich, they get it more. They have to get it. They're in states with large black constituencies, whereas the outsiders, Trump, Carson, they don't really have to get it. I, and I also think that their appeal is 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 from a totally different kind of person. I'd say that's definitely else. not my split. For example, I'd say that, uh, you know, Bobby Jindal is someone who I think in a lot of ways is almost deliberately being obtuse. But I think to your broader point about brand, I'll give you a little example. If you're looking at the Conservative Party in the UK, one thing that was really interesting is that during the New Labour era, you know, basically on pretty much any issue, on crime, on the European Union, on immigration, on these kind of really big hot button issues, the Conservative position was way more popular than the Labour position, but just people just hated Conservatives. Mm -hmm. And so then David Cameron comes in, and a big part of his project was, I've got to detoxify the brand. Now, he did it in ways that I think, you know, didn't kind of... Um, you know, he was focused heavily on environmentalism, something he barely talks about at all now. Uh, he was focusing on social issues, again, something that's kind of been de-emphasized since. But I think that, you know, now he's really talking, it's really interesting to see what a disciplined center-right party does. He just talks about helping working class people achieve upper mobility. That is all he talks yeah. about in a totally disciplined kind of way. And I think that if you had a Republican party that was able to have a candidate who, let's say, does not come from a super rich background, you know, who kind of seems to kind of relate to middle class people and their anxieties and concerns, and I can talk about that intelligently. I think that in itself would be huge, and particularly in contrast with a Democratic primary field that 
honestly, when you talk about how great Denmark is all the time, here's the, the secret <laughs> sauce of Denmark. The secret sauce of Denmark is that middle class people pay extremely high taxes. Any smart person, you know, on the left or right, will acknowledge that. They have a VAT, they have a, you know, sort of, you know, basically about, you know, almost half of GDP is paid in taxes. So basically some people are paying taxes, and then you've got a huge number of people who are public employees. You know, and, you know, kind of, and for the Danes, it works out just fine. I would love to have Hillary Clinton straight up say, you know, government services are great. Don't you love how well your government services work? Don't you think they just work terrifically well, do a great job? So don't you want to hand over more of your paycheck, middle class person, to pay for these great services? By the way, this works in some places. I'm not saying it doesn't. You know, it could work. Whether it's going to work in the United States, you know, that's an open question. But, but the thing is that you want to run on that platform? Merry Christmas. If you have a Republican who says, you know what, actually, we kind of think it works great when middle class folks keep more of their income. And I think that Democrats want a race in which, you know, you're debating tax cuts for the rich, which is why I spent the last 10 plus years saying that, hey, Republicans, leave the top rate where it is. Leave it alone focus on the other piece of it. Who should be controlling that money? You know, kind of, uh, do we want it to be decentralized? Do we want lots of different solutions for the different problems that folks have? And, uh, you know, kind of allow them to keep more of their paycheck? Uh, or actually, for people who are really poor, you know, maybe we incentivize them to work by giving them a little bit more in a wage subsidy. That's how we approach it. That would be an election I would love to see. So I want to go back to one thing about David Cameron and detoxifying the brand. Obviously, huge differences between a parliamentary system and our system. But also in our system, we have this small portion of the Republican Party that doesn't want to detoxify the brand. They want to maybe retoxify the brand, the Freedom Caucus. Can you achieve that detoxification if you have this large, vocal, but really powerful and empowered minority pulling you in the other direction? It seems impossible. I actually kind of see the problem a little bit differently. So, for example, there are surprisingly decent number of pro-life Democrats still in the universe. There are very few of them elected to office. Yeah. And part of that's because, you know, small dollar donors matter a lot. And the small dollar donors tend to be very ideological people. They tend to be upper middle class people. And also, because of campaign finance regulation, we've really weakened the political parties. So right now, the political parties have very little ability to actually give you much if you're a candidate. Mm -hmm. So then if I can't give you much, I can't really take all that much yeah, away from you. you can't keep your guys exactly, in line. Exactly, exactly. So you have a huge discipline problem. Whereas when you're in the minority, you're just kind of like, oh, we're just going to kind of like rub our hands together and kind of watch these guys screw things up. Right. You know, there's more to the Freedom Caucus. And I'd say that, frankly, I'm kind of sympathetic to them on at least one big issue. And I think that it happens to be the big subtext of this battle within the Republican Party right now. But I'd say that that's the big problem. What's I mean, the big the issue? Well, the big issue is that if you look at the electorate, 20% of Democrats say they want to increase immigration levels. And if you look at Republicans, it's 7%. And when you hear people kind of talk about how oh, these Freedom Caucus guys are crazy, yeah, they're definitely crazy. But they've gotten a lot of juice out of the fact that on this one really big issue, they're with not just a lot of Republicans, but with a lot of Americans. Right. And, and yeah, I, I would also helps. say on something like abortion, they uh, you could make the case that they're tactics will actually get to the positions that their constituents want, which is things like defunding of Planned Parenthood. Like the mainstream Republicans are like, yeah, we're against Planned Parenthood, but we got to go along to get along. And they're saying, no, 
we're going to actually try to defund Planned Parenthood, right? Same thing with taxes, right? We are not going, we are doing whatever we can to rate, to lower taxes, whereas it's not the go along, get along. So maybe you can make the case that tactically they are better serving their constituents who really want hard yeah, line I, on those I, issues. I would, so I think that there's, I think that you're half right. I think that you're right to say that I think part of this is that, look, you know, you've got social conservatives, you've got pro-life conservatives who are turning out to the polls year in, year out. And what are they actually getting? Are you willing to actually suffer for them? Are you willing to actually kind of, you know, put a marker down and do something meaningful? I think that that does count for a lot. But on the other hand, I think a bigger structural problem is that I'd say the Democratic coalition is a bit more transactional and the conservative coalition, the Republican coalition, is more ideological. So Obamacare, I would argue, mm -hmm. we could go back and forth on this, but I would argue that it actually hasn't achieved a lot of the goals it set out to achieve. But on the other hand, the thing is for, for Democrats and for people who are in favor of, you know, kind of coverage expansion, hey, half a loaf is better than none because, you know, we've got this now. You're not going to claw it back. Good luck trying to take healthcare away from people who have it through this. And then, hey, now Bernie Sanders wants to build on it. You know, let's have Medicare for all now. So, you know, Obamacare was not a defeat for the Bernie Sanders of the world who want Medicare for all, who want single payer. Whereas for Republicans, you know, their attitude is really it's cosmic. It's all or nothing. You know, we can't give an inch on anything. And I think that, you know, that means that, you know, you certainly have ideological Democrats. You've got those guys. But actually, the ideological Democrats and what actually happens, they're oftentimes pretty far apart. Like, let's say an ideological Democrat believes we should have more open borders because it's the humanitarian thing to do. But yeah. the policy you get is a policy that helps immigrants bring their relatives to the right. United States. Right. Whereas on the Republican side, you know, if your goals are cosmic, if your goals are to win everything, well, the problem is, let's say I repeal Obamacare. You still have the pre-existing condition problem and all these other problems you had before. So I think that for conservatives... We don't always think politically. But let me ask you this. Why is that a difference between two types of things, ideological and transactional, versus a continuum, and you just put those Freedom Caucus Republicans on the far end of it? Why isn't it they're all ideological, they just have a much more radical ideology? I don't think of it that way because, and you know, again, I'm speaking for myself, so I would say that my own views are very conservative ideologically. Now, there are a lot of people who think of me as kind of maybe more pragmatic, more moderate, whatever else. Well, and you're a nice I, guy as well. Well, but I, think, <laughs> but I think that actually but the, the truth is that I just think, look, we have a reality. You know, kind of we have, this is the government we have. This is, you know, kind of what we're dealing with. These are the contending forces. And I think that it's just crazy, because, you know, like, you had a lot of conservatives who complained about the fact that President Bush wanted to include prescription drug coverage in Medicare. People still think this was this grave betrayal, you know, blah, blah. Look, a huge majority of Americans wanted this coverage. So if Bush didn't give it to them, someone else would have given it to him. And actually, in that Medicare Modernization Act, actually a lot of other really good things happened. He mm -hmm. put in place a lot of other things that I would argue have been very beneficial for the health system. So, uh, you know, I, I think that you've got to think strategically, what is our goal? What is our 50, 60-year goal? How do we get to that goal? The country is just different than it was before. Uh, so I, I think that it's not so much, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people, they share a lot of ideological gut instincts. Some are more realistic than others. But the problem is that, you know, the people that are characterized as pragmatists among House Republicans, they're not pragmatists. They're just lazy and uh, they're just they just are, they just do nothing they actually don't appear to have any objectives like you had republicans who won in 2014 basically saying well we're not those guys 
And then let's get really pumped. So then, of course, conservatives have incredibly high expectations for what they're going to accomplish. But then you've got, you know, people like Kevin McCarthy who are like, well, we're going to prove we can govern by showing that we can pass some pass. OK. And get it signed by the president. Well, then you're completely at the mercy of the president. No, I mean, just focus on what you can actually do or pass legislation, you know, for example, reasserting Congress's authority in various areas. Or actually beforehand, what I think they should have done is run on an actual agenda. Then guess what? You box in the Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. You know, you actually do something constructive. You get people united around certain agenda items. They didn't do any of that. They were just trying to hang on to power and trying to survive. So, you know, I have lots of problems with the Freedom Caucus. But I think that the alternative, you know, the kind of leaders that we've had for a long time, they're not all that much better in my view. Rahan Salam, executive editor of National Review, also writes trenchant political analysis for Slate. Thanks, Raihan. Thank you. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real life interviews and commentary from 40 somethings, plus a compelling four part podcast on first time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040 vision slash family. And now the spiel, adopt a pet cause. Yesterday was adoption day. So I hope you consider bringing one of these adorable little guys into your home. They're completely housebroken. They just need a stable, loving environment. So if you missed adoption day, you can fill your heart with the love that you can only get from an Iranian centrifuge. Oh. Didn't I mention the adoption day I'm talking about was in Iran. It was 90 days after the U.N. Security Council endorsed the multinational agreement whereby Iran would limit nuclear activities. Iran has its work cut out for it. Its tasks include removing thousands of centrifuges and putting them into monitored storage, making significant changes at its Iraq heavy water plant, and providing access to International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors who will monitor Iran's nuclear-related facilities. And that was the voice of America. America, so you know they weren't just mispronouncing Iraq as Iraq, like a southern senator would. They meant to say Iraq. The question is, does Iran mean to comply? Well, they did allow a news crew to shoot some footage of guys wielding an acetylene torch, working on maybe decommissioning something. Nothing says decommissioning something than an acetylene torch. I don't know, maybe it says you're working alongside Bruce Willis to fend off a deadly meteor hurtling towards Earth. There's only so much that a guy with an acetylene torch says. Mostly it says, we can't make the first step. You have to call us. In all honesty, there wasn't that much news around Adoption Day. I just like the name of it. What news there was had some clips of John Kerry saying it's a good first step. Some clips of Republicans saying they're going to cheat. And this is the way the story is going to go for 15 years. For 15 years, we're going to get the defenders saying it's working. We haven't been attacked by nukes yet. And we're going to get critics saying they're going to cheat. I do not like war, but I got to admit, war has cleaner storylines than diplomacy. Although not always. Take Kunduz, as the Taliban did, and then the U.S. did, and then the Taliban did. We got it, they got it, we got it, they got it. And then it all ended, and this was an actual Taliban statement. They left Kunduz, quote, to save ammunition. Now, at first I was like, well, what am I going to believe the Taliban? But think about it. 
for all their flaws, the Taliban is actually pretty honest, right? The Taliban says, hey, we're going to blow up this 600-year-old statue, and they blow up a 600-year-old statue, or we're going to find kite flying in a front to God. They really think kite flying is a front to God. So taking them at their word, the Taliban, they're withdrawing to save ammunition. They want to persecute Al Jazeera journalists. They want to kill them. They want to subjugate any woman who shows more than an eye slit worth of eye but they want to save ammunition. Ammunition they want to save. Of course, it's very disheartening. Remember when Barack Obama withdrew troops from Iraq and he was criticized on the right for giving the country away? And now that he's keeping troops in Afghanistan, he's criticized on the right for letting the whole thing come to that. I know how Barack Obama thinks. He thinks that the war in Iraq was an extremely stupid war. And guess what? It was an extremely stupid war. And he didn't think it would be easy to end the war, but he thought that's what needed to be done. He knew that it would cost more lives. He knew that it would cost reserves. He knew that it would cost him some political capital. But he did have this general idea that we're going to fight less. We're going to use diplomacy more. We're going to be humble in the face of unintended consequences. And if we stick to those ideas, the world's going to be better. Well, guess what? The world's not that much better. This weekend on Bill Maher, editor of The Nation magazine, Katrina Vandenhuvel, echoed the progressive party line on these matters. Strength is not Rambo. Strength is not these bully boys like McCain and Christie. Strength is about diplomacy. It's about political solutions. And that sounds wise, especially if you do realize that the war in Iraq was a terrible mistake. It's wise, but it's not true or it's at least not simply true. There is no simple solution with these complex problems that fits all definitions. Yeah, going into Iraq was a terrible choice. Here are some other choices that the U.S. has made in that region that are the opposite of going into Iraq like Rambo would have. The U.S. sat on the sidelines totally in Syria. The U.S. assisted rebel groups in Libya to depose Gaddafi. The U.S. gave clear signals that Mubarak needed to go in Egypt. The U.S. let Saudi Arabia do whatever they wanted in Yemen. So how'd these go? Let's tick them off. Libya, shit show. Egypt, near shit show. Syria, epic shit show. Saudi Arabia, sucks for the Yemenis, doesn't really affect the United States. Then there's Bahrain. Bahrain, fairly close regional partner, we'll say ally-ish of the United States. Monarchy, brutal brutally put down the uprisings that arose with the Arab Spring. That goes against every ideal of every freedom-loving American. But guess what? Bahrain's not a shit show. I don't want to come to the conclusion that in the Middle East, stability is the only thing the U.S. can hope for, but I'm not getting so much contradictory evidence that stability isn't all the U.S. should strive for. I support the Iranian nuclear deal. I believe in giving diplomacy a chance, but I'm a realist. Might not work. You might need bombs or at least the credible threat of bombs to solve that problem. Idealism, either the gung-ho nation-building type or the diplomacy uber-Alice variety, isn't always the best choice. And doing the opposite of what your predecessors did because they did it so badly isn't a strategy. It's a critique.
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, our editor, through the miracle of editing each day, transports us to a grassy savanna of audio delight. Executive producer Andy Bowers veers away from the desiccated tundra of audio mediocrity via his stewardship of the Panoply Network. The gist, our biome is the freshwater ecosystem. We take you to a wetlands of insight, wordplay, and analysis. But they might be giants. Creators of Dial-A-Song, Monday Mainstays on the gist. They might be giants. Bring you to a forest.